All right, we have studied technically the first nine verses of Ephesians, but I'm going to cheat and go back a verse or two and pick up in verse 8. Uh, as you probably have in your Bibles, whether they be a study Bible or a more simplified Bible, sometimes we have little subheadings, we have little paragraphs to, that have been inserted by non-inspired individuals to help us get a better understanding of this may be a new thought. Sometimes those paragraphs are helpful. Sometimes they are hurtful. Uh, but in this case, verse 8 is a break in my Bible, and it also is the beginning of a lengthy sentence. We've made mention before that if the Apostle Paul were to use Microsoft Word, he'd get a lot of red lines underneath uh, his document because he does use long sentences, at least as it translates into English. And this is a long sentence, and I want to go back and pick up in verse 8. And so before we do so, I want wanted to do a quick review. The other thing is, especially for the benefit of our visitors, if you have a comment, we are, we are more than happy to hear your feedback as well as questions. All the tough questions will be saved for next week when Eric gets back, though. Uh, but we, in all seriousness, if you have something that you want to say that's more than just three or four seconds, Jonathan has a microphone, I have a microphone, and that's for the benefit of everyone in the auditorium being able to hear as well as those who may be listening online can benefit from what you have to say as well. So just a real quick review to start with. And what I did is I picked out about five or six verses that Eric has really kind of emphasized and the Holy Spirit seems to be emphasizing and verses that really kind of shape the foundation of the first half of Ephesians. As you know, Ephesians has six chapters, again, as divided by a non-inspired man. So when Paul wasn't writing chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. He was just writing a letter. But it is nicely divided in that the first half is kind of one direction and the second half, chapters four through six, are kind of a different direction built on the foundation of those first three chapters. And so a couple of quick verses here. One is verse three of chapter one. All spiritual blessings come through Jesus Christ. Everything that we have that is of a spiritual foundation, that is important to us, that is beneficial to us, it all comes through Jesus Christ. And that's one of the key points that he makes as he launches into this very powerful letter. Secondly, uh, we talked about the fact that it's in him. And one of the ways that you can study, particularly the first chapter of Ephesians, is to look at all the in hymns. And it talks about all the blessings in him, all the good things in him. And that, I think, is a, is a good way to kind of study through chapter 1. And we kind of looked at that about three or four weeks ago. Chapter 1, verse 22, and we've talked about how Ephesians and Colossians kind of match well together. You read one and you see some of the similar things in the other. And certainly chapter 1, verse 22, all things are under the authority of Christ Jesus. Uh, we talked about this just two or three weeks ago. We are dead without Christ Jesus. Without Jesus, we don't have hope. 
We don't have anything. Uh, number five, God's grace means everything. And I thought that we had a really good series of discussions in chapter two on a section of scripture that can be um, and is used in inappropriate ways in denominations to teach that we are saved by grace alone and that all I have to do is to believe. And, and Eric did a good job of taking us through some of those thoughts and some of those passages. And then chapter 3, verse 6, which we looked at last week, is that all people are blessed in Jesus Christ. You'll notice that I used the phrase Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or him multiple times in the first in the summary of the first three chapters. And that's because it all goes back to Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of everything that we believe and everything that Paul's writing in this letter some 2,000 years ago. The key word, it seems to me, in the third chapter is the idea of the mystery. And Eric got us into this idea of the mystery. A mystery is something that is shrouded or maybe uncertain or that is unclear. But a revelation of that mystery is where you pull back the curtain and you say, now I understand better. And the whole concept here seems to me not to oversimplify, but I like to make things simple. And that is all people, regardless of your background, regardless of your lineage, regardless of whether you are Jewish or Gentile, can be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the curtain is pulled back, and everyone says, that makes sense. Not everyone's going to agree with that. Not everyone's going to like that message. And some people are going to be greatly offended by that message. And that's probably a good, I would say, 15% of the New Testament is written to deal with those issues. Hebrews and Galatians and even sections of Romans that Carrie took us through uh, a, a year or so ago. Okay, anything else in the first Two chapters and seven verses that you wanted to make sure that we revisited. And again, if it's something quick, two or three seconds, just yell it out. Uh, if it's something longer, we'll get a microphone to you. All right. So I want us to go and look at this concept of least among the saints, which we spent about five minutes talking about at the tail end of our study last week. So I want to read the first, uh, at least as it is written here, uh, the first long sentence, and that's going to start in verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 12, and we're going to pause and talk about this for just uh, three or four minutes. To me, and the me here is the Apostle Paul, who am less than... And the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, 
according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And we'll, we'll stop there and talk about that for just a, a moment or so with leaning heavily on the last two verses or the first two verses that we were actually discussing last week. First and foremost, it seems to me that Paul was routinely, and I made reference to 1 Corinthians 15, I could have made reference to Paul's comment to Timothy as being the chief of sinners. He's very quick to see himself as who he was. If there was ever a man, save Jesus himself, who could say, look at the good I've done, look at the things I've accomplished, the apostle Paul would be able to make that claim. He writes half the New Testament. He gives his life most likely for the cause of Christ. He sacrifices so much monetarily and in society of a Jewish culture for a cause that to probably summon his family, they thought he's a little bit lost his marbles. He's making weird decisions. He's, he's gone in a direction different than he's ever been. But he says, I am a nobody. Save, on, save, save that thought for the sermon tonight, this idea of being nobody and not being important. That's one of the things I'm going to talk about, Lord willing, this afternoon at 5. But he says, I'm, I'm insufficient, I'm inferior, I'm imperfect, but I am important by virtue of God's grace. And so, you know, we, we always like to make some big applications or easy applications. There's an easy one. We are all, no offense to anybody here who thinks they're important, we are all unimportant people in this world. But to God, we are important. And Paul says, I'm the least. He says, I'm, I'm less than the least of the saints. We could talk about why he makes mention of that. I think that he's really trying to focus in on the latter part of the statement. It's by God's grace that I've been elevated to a place where he thinks I am important. And so that brings us then to this key point, this I think is a key point, is that grace is mentioned more in Ephesians than almost any other book in the New Testament. Thirteen different times the idea of grace is referenced in Ephesians. Probably not a surprise if you've studied the Bible more than a couple of years in depth. Uh, but this concept is essential to an understanding of Paul's letters and Paul's letter here to the church at Ephesus. And so if you go to verse 8, part 2, where it says, So that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, he says, I'm recognizing that even though I am unimportant, God has given me a task that is important and vital. It is a God-given purpose. Without looking, what is Acts 9.15 saying? We'll give bonus points to the, to, the, to the person who can identify correctly what Acts 9.15 says, either uh, quotation or just a broad summary. Anybody know what Acts 9.15? I know what it says because I looked at it a couple days ago. But he says, I am a, uses the V word, at least in the New King James Version. He says, I'm a vessel, right? Uh, the, actually, Ananias in speaking to Saul, says, you are going to be an important vessel, a chosen instrument who is going to share this message with a population that hasn't 
had that information brought to them, at least in the broader context as they're now going to receive. And then the last thing here I'll say in verses 8 and 9 is that he wants to bring an illumination and to light this mystery that's been hidden. And if you read the ESV, it says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And I, I looked at the ESV. I thought that's, that's kind of a neat way of rendering verse 9 in this particular um, a study. I'm going to pause there before we go on to our next slide as we continue thinking about this, and we're going to progress into verses uh, 10 and 11 here in just a second. But thoughts, comments, questions, disagreements are always fine as well because I, I sometimes do make mistakes. All right. As we continue on, I want us to think about this idea of the purpose of the mystery. Uh, actually, uh, I had forgotten that I just recently taught this to uh, a group of brethren on in a Zoom call. So I actually stole from some of my old material. Uh, and I thought that this was kind of an interesting concept here where he uses the phrase unsearchable riches. Uh, it again seems to me to reveal the mystery, which was the purpose of Paul's ministry. If you were to nail down in a paragraph or in two sentences, what is the purpose of the Apostle Paul's ministry? I would think sharing the message of God with the world, particularly with a population that has not experienced that message before or has not been able to have the fullness of that message delivered. That might be more than two sentences. But that seems to me to be really what Paul's doing here with Ephesus, with Galatia, with Thessalonica, which we're going to talk about in about a month and a half as we look at the Thessalonian letters. In verse 9, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. That word fellowship is a similar word to the idea of stewardship or dispensation. We use the word dispensation almost always to talk about a Mosaic dispensation or a Christian dispensation or prior to that a patriarchal dispensation. And that's appropriate. That's fine. Those are, you know, there's a big three kind of time periods that even probably most of our fourth graders could appreciate and say, yep, I understand that concept. But that word is used here. We talked about, Eric did uh, two weeks ago, about stewardship and what stewardship means. And it's more than just I own something. It's that I'm responsible for something that I'm in the care of that actually belongs to someone else. We are stewards because it belongs to God, but we have the responsibility of representing God or to use Paul's comment to the church at Corinth, we are ambassadors for his cause. And there are two things that just jumped out to me in verse 9 before we move on to kind of brand new material here. I know we're kind of spending a little extra time on review. Is one that he uses the phrase, it is hidden in God, but it's been revealed and is now available to all men. And that's good news. That's the gospel, right? For all of us who now benefit from that message and benefit from its power. To borrow from Romans 1, when Paul talks about the power of salvation. Anything on what we've done up until this point? 
uh, Leanne over here, Jonathan, and microphone's on the way, and then we'll uh, go from there. Um, I think the Gentiles knew there was a, a God because in, um, when Paul's preaching in um, Athens, they have a statue to an unknown mm -hmm. God. And then he starts preaching Christ to them. Now, they wouldn't believe it at the time. They wouldn't accept it at the time. Mm -hmm. But even God says, the Gentiles know through creation who I am. So they, they, had, they had some kind of knowledge. There was a higher being or something mm -hmm. that was, not, was, was different than their idols mm -hmm. or their gods. Absolutely. Yeah, I think to, 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 to make a blanket statement that Gentiles didn't know anything about God— Prior to the Apostle Paul, we don't know what they knew, although we know they knew certain things. Ultimately, they didn't, humanity, Jew, Gentile, anybody, didn't know enough until the full gospel, well, let me rephrase that. They knew what they needed to know, but then the gospel provides this beautiful and full picture. And to use the phrase in verse 10 that we're going to get into, the New King James uses the word, the word manifold wisdom of God so that it may be known that which was hidden. So this is really good news. All right, let's go then a little bit further here to this idea of the purpose of the mystery and look at this manifold wisdom of God. When you think of manifold, and there's no, well, it might be a wrong answer. What do you think of when you hear, think of manifold? I, I think of a car is what I think of. I, I, I do. That's the first thing that came to mind. So thank you, Nate. Uh, someone d d define manifold in 10 words or less. And if you want to, if, if, it's, if it's five words or less, just yell it out and I'll repeat it. What's man? When you say, if someone says manifold, what do you think besides car? Many branches. Many branches. Many parts. Very good. Um, in fact, I put up a definition. I, I, looked, I looked it up just to see and it, the idea of various, variations, many, uh, branches. I love that word that David used here. And so he's saying, to the intent that now the manifold witness of God. Uh, I have a little footnote in my Bible. Those of you that have a study Bible probably have the idea of variegated, the idea of various. That's the, the same root word that's coming up here uh, as well. Why is that important? Why would Paul use such a strong word? We know that he is the one who's writing this down. But we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who's ultimately authoring this message. Why, why, why not just talk about the mystery? Why, why not just talk about wisdom? He says it's the manifold wisdom. Why? You're dealing with a culture that had a lot of wisdom teachers. Absolutely. Dealing with a culture that had a lot of wisdom teachers. People that thought... They had it. And it kind of goes back to, even though Ephesus is in what we would call Turkey or Asia Minor, a culture that would have been likely familiar with a Greek culture that Leanne made reference to just a moment or so ago, with the presence of many little g-gods uh, and idols to those particular gods. So that's a really good point that Mitch makes, and it segues nicely with what Leanne pointed out here. In verse 11, it's according to what kind of purpose? 
eternal purpose. This goes to tell us and remind us and reinforce to us that God's plan was not accidental, was not plan B or plan C, but rather that it's according to his eternal purpose, which is in who? Going back to our introduction, Christ Jesus. It always goes back to him. When in doubt, and you're reading in the book of Ephesians, it's in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ or in him, some variation of that particular phrase. So uh, I put up a couple of verses. I want to actually go back very quickly to these two passages that I was thinking about uh, just a couple of days ago. One is in Acts 2 and the other is in Acts 4. And we're actually going to be looking tonight, Lord willing, at Acts 3. So we're going to get our, 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 our heavy dose of Acts over the next uh, six, seven hours. But in Acts chapter 2, in verse 22, this is a sermon that Peter is preaching. This is Pentecost. This is where 3,000 people will ultimately respond. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. There he is again, the center of the sermon. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined, it's a New King James, purpose and foreknowledge of God. You've taken a crucified and have put to death by lawless hands. The, the key part is verse 23, part A, determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And we have talked about before uh, in classes or in discussions, in sermons, that you and I will come across individuals who would suggest or outright teach that Jesus dying on the cross was not ever a part of God's plan. But it was an oops moment. And that wasn't the case. Acts 2 tells us that. Ephesians 1 tells us that. Ephesians 3 tells us that. And if you go then just a page or so over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 and verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And I took that a little bit out of the broader context that you can go back and reread on your own. Simply put, Jesus' death is not a mistake. And I, I've made mention of that a dozen times in the last couple of years because we've got to make sure that we are ready to defend against that false claim by people uh, who are even good-natured and good-intentioned people uh, that just have got it incorrect. If I were to read verse 12 without reading Acts or without reading Ephesians 3, verse 12, I would guess that it was from the book of, read my mind, Hebrews. book of Hebrews, absolutely. And there's a, uh, we've actually are been studying the book of Hebrews in another class that I've been in, that David's been in, and Jason and some others. And verse 12 is a Hebrew-esque verb, or Hebrew-esque verse. I made that up, by the way. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 10 makes reference to that kind of uh, passage as well. In fact, I think I put those up here. Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 if you want to cross-reference those. We do not go to God and say, God, if in case you're listening, 
We go to God and say, God, I not in, not in an arrogant way. I'm not suggesting that we're arrogant. But God, I know you're there because I'm coming through Jesus, the high priest, the mediator, the advocate, to borrow from 1 John. Uh, and I know that you hear me. And I'm confident that you will answer me. Maybe not in the way that I want you to answer me, but I'm confident you'll answer me. Anything else on the first 13 verses of chapter uh, three. All right, we're going to go ahead and spend the balance of our time, which looks to be about 18 minutes here, uh, looking at the last uh, seven or eight verses. I want to just uh, read verses 14 through 21, which, and I think Eric made mention of this last week because I made a little note to myself, but I've since slept and forgotten some things. But I think he even used the word prayer. Uh, there are different prayers in Paul's letters or maybe pseudo prayers where he's saying, these are the things that I pray about. And so in verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ from, and let me just pause there. I did not put this on the screen, but this goes back to David's sermon last Sunday evening, which was part two of the sermon from the snow and ice storm a month ago, uh, father, we speak to our father, do we not? And that, and that ought not be lost on us. And I, uh, I think if I can say one thing, not to, not to make David feel too good about himself, but all of us have probably thought a little bit more about praying to our father as his child, more so in the last seven days I have than, uh, previous times, just because that's a good point. So not that you don't always make good points, David, but that was a good point. All right. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family, there's another word, in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him... Be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that's the end of this little prayer or prayer sample or uh, prayer outline. And that's the end of chapter 3. And that is the end of the literal first half of Ephesians as divided into six chapters. And that's the end of this section. And I think, uh, I think if I remember correctly, Eric even used the phrase that next week we'll get into, um, not that the first three chapters aren't practical, but there's some very practical things that really kind of launch into chapters four, five, and six that we really need to appreciate. Chapter 5, for example, we spent significant time studying with Brother Don just a few weeks ago on the subject of marriage. So, uh, let's talk about mystery's result here in our final uh, 15 minutes or so. Uh, 
I use the word forced, and I maybe I regret using that word, but I, I put it in quotes because it's not that he's forced and he's compelled, but that he's compelled in that I am so thankful and so grateful and so just amazed at God's grace that I have to pray to him. And I'm forced to my knees in appreciation. And there's the idea of the father and the family again. And so in verse 16, he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory that you might be strengthened with might. Or the word might be used there, power. And it seems to me that as he references here in 16, with might to the spirit in what kind of man? The inner man. So God is not necessarily about strengthening the outer man. We pray about that when we talk about a person's physical health, and there's nothing wrong with that. But God says, and Paul says, God is able through his immense power to strengthen you and to build you up in the inner man. Why do you think, and I, I think I put the, yeah, the focus on the inner man, why do you think, and I'm going to put up my next little statement here, but, but I won't do that because I'll give the answer away. Why do you think the, the apostle says the inner man here? Okay, related to the spirit, related to the soul. And Nate pointed out that because it goes on to the idea of eternity. Our body will see corruption and we will be raised in an incorruptible way. I don't know what that's going to look like. Frankly, I'm not really concerned about that. What I am concerned about is making sure that me and others are spiritually prepared because the outer man is going to decay. Second Corinthians 4. Four, I think. Yeah, okay, good. I haven't lost my mind yet, but it's a part of it. Uh, someone else said something. Okay, microphone's on the way. Oh, go ahead. We believe that mm-hmm. heart, mind, body, and soul is what belongs to God. And that's very important because a lot of denominations do not believe that. Okay. They believe that it's the church or it's the Pope or it's this or that. But we believe heart, mind, body, and soul belongs to God. And so the inner man would have been very, very important very good. For, for them to know it was inner, not outward. Yes. So he's making this clear distinction between inner and outer. And the point that I put up there is that... Uh, it needs to always be spiritual greater than physical. That's my greater than, less than. It's the alligator eats the other one. So always loved that when I was in the third grade when the alligator ate the bigger number, greater than, less than. That's the only thing I got out of third grade. <laughs> Not that smart. But spiritual, always more important, always more fundamental than physical. Always. And so we talk about the two chairs. I've done that before. If you've got a person here who's 30 years old and very healthy uh, and is not a Christian, and I've got a 75-year-old here who's on hospice care and about to pass away but is a faithful Christian, who am I more concerned about and who am I more prayerful for? Well... We tend, and when I say we, including me, we get so focused on the physical things, and we, we, we and I don't want that 75-year-old suffering, don't get me wrong, but I'm concerned about the 30-year-old who needs to get his or her life right with God over here. 
Okay. Uh, the ultimate result of the mystery, it seems to me, is found in verse 17. That Jesus Christ may dwell in your hearts. And he says here in verse 17, uh, that may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and you may be grounded in love. I love the word dwell. What is the T word that dwell translates to? This is another guess what's in my brain. Tabernacle, right? So in John 1, 14, when it says he came and he dwelt among us, it's literally that he came and he tabernacled with us. It's that he has a relationship with us. Rather than us going to the temple, John chapter 4, the temple has now come to us kind of uh, image. Uh, and so I even put up there, Christ may tabernacle in our hearts and rooted in love. And of course, anytime you see a passage like that, your mind, at least my mind, immediately goes to some of the powerful imagery of the Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with the chapter that he talks so much about charity. He talks about love. He talks about all that good stuff there. Anything on the first 17 verses that we haven't said? Because we're going to spend our final, uh, Brother John here, uh, final eight minutes or so looking at the last four or five verses. I think uh, back up in verse 13, he's saying, I don't want you to lose heart when you see the tribulations, all that I've suffered. Been in prison several years. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten and all these things that you see happening to me. But he said, I don't want you to lose heart when you see that. And he says, for this reason, because I don't want you to lose heart, mm -hmm. I'm going to pray for you. He, he wasn't just wishing and hoping, but he says, you're in my prayer so that uh, the Father would strengthen them and uh, Christ would live in their hearts. So that's kind of the reason he, like I say, he's not just wishing you not, but I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you. You know, that's where the power is. I like that. Very good. Uh, if you uh, wish someone good health, nothing wrong with that. Pray for their good health. I like that application. And who was it? Hmm, don't, don't tell me who it was. But someone recently, I just had a conversation with someone. I'm getting old. But about three weeks ago, I had a conversation with someone that said, you know, rather than saying, I'll pray for you. Maybe just go ahead and take that moment and pray for them. And I'm, I'm the kind of person that when I get an email or a text message or I send out an email or a text message saying so-and-so is in need of prayer because of this physical or spiritual challenge that they're facing or whatever, if I don't do it right then, I, 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 it can. I can't slip my mind. And I see the heads nodding up and down like, yeah, you understand. You know, so, so do it then. Do it as soon as you can. That way you can... Not just check the box, but make sure that that person is prayed for in a meaningful way. Okay, uh, we got just about uh, eight minutes here. Uh, and let's deal with two final slides here. Verse 18 is very important. They're all important, I understand that. But verse 18, comprehend the width, the length, the depth, and the height. And I thought about that, and I've read that probably a dozen, maybe three dozen times in my life. What does that mean? The, the breadth, the length, the depth, the height? So I thought, oh, I'm going to spend an extra 30 seconds thinking about that. And this is where my brain went, so you can watch my brain work, okay? And so when it came to the idea of the breadth or the width, I thought about the, the children's song, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Right? That's exactly where my mind went. My God is big. 
Length reminded me of John chapter 13, verse 1, where uh, it talked about he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, talking about Jesus, the length of his love. The depth reminded me of the song that we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And then the height, this might be a little bit of a leap and... If you disagree with this, that's fine. But the idea that we can reach up to heaven and see God, and we will spend eternity in, in heaven because that's the uh, part of us that, as a spirit or as a soul, gets to experience, as Nate talked about just a few moments or so ago. So there's just kind of some thoughts that I had. The last thing here on this uh, thing here is this. Love of Jesus Christ passes knowledge. You and I, I think, academically have a good handle on the notion that Jesus loves me, this I know. There's another song, right? I think we understand that. But do we understand that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we have the ability to fully appreciate the fact that, wow, he loves me that much. And so in verse 19, it says, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, just beyond our knowledge, beyond our ability to know, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I, I, I would argue that it's so great that we can't know or understand fully. And we need to spend our entire lives working at trying to understand that. And when we see him, as he is, to borrow from another passage, then I think we'll look at each other and say, now I know a little bit more. I don't know what that's going to look like, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, I had a conversation just kind of as an aside with a uh, very good friend of mine who's probably, he might be 89 or 90. He's got the energy of a 40-year-old. And uh, talked to him a couple of days ago, and as we were ending the conversation, I said, Jack, I said, I may not talk to you again in this life. He says, I know. He said, but I'll talk to you on the other side. I said, okay, just in case we don't talk anymore. All right. Anything else before we get to the last two verses? I want to see, yeah, Brother Mitch here. Oh, I'll get you a microphone. I've never done it. I think uh, verse 18 where it says, uh, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Uh, you know, Paul's letter here is, is specifically to Gentiles, but you also have Jewish uh, Christians as well. And I think it's, it's unique to think that Paul, uh, being someone who had the background that he had, had the understanding of the history and the law of the Jewish people, that he was one that would be very well qualified to give them an understanding that they would not have because they don't have the history that the Jews do with God and with God's law in understanding that depth and breadth and width and knowledge of, of his love that's shown throughout that period of time. I like that. That's an excellent, excellent point. Anything else? All right. Let's go ahead and look at just the last couple of verses. We could spend a lot of time on uh, verse 20. But I actually put it on the screen here. We'll be talking about this, where it says, "Now in now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, 
To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I've made no mystery about that. That's become one of my new favorite verses just in the last couple of years. I love that passage for a number of reasons, and it's obvious why. You know, I, I might think about a situation spiritually where someone is not where he or she needs to be, physically where their health is really suffering, financially, uh, mentally where a person is struggling. And I think I just... I don't. I just don't see an. I don't see an end. I don't see where this is going to work out. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask, or even that we would think. That to me is mind blowing. That's the God of power that we serve. So I just made four quick observations here. So if I was going to write a sermon on these verses, here are probably. Three or four things that I would point out. One, only God can do this. No man can do that. No doctor can do that. Uh, no therapist can do that. Not that there aren't reasons for doctors and therapists. And no bank account can do that. Only God can do things that are just completely, that will just make our minds like, wow. He's able to do that. Secondly, it's beyond our comprehension. We are unable to comprehend these particular things. Uh, the other thing, and if you wanted to explore this sometime in a study of your own, you're more than welcome to do so. Uh, and that is, we have God's power in us. That could be a, a couple of different things, but to me, that's just a wow statement. There are certain things in my notes I just write out wow to. And then fourthly, the church is important. He makes reference to glory be in the church by Christ Jesus. The church is vital. Chapter 5 talks about that in more detail, and we'll get to that with Eric in about two or three weeks. So next week, uh, and we'll pause here for the last 30 seconds for comments, we'll get into chapter 4. Uh, I would suggest reading the last three chapters in quick succession at some point in the next uh, seven days. Any final comments before we wrap up here? Yeah, Brother Gary over here, uh, Jonathan. And I appreciate so much the comments today. I was thinking about verse 19 again. Those of us who are older, especially, I think, realize that over our lifetime, we think things we shouldn't think, say things we shouldn't say, do things we shouldn't do. We have done that throughout our life. And that idea that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, <laughs> that he forgives that, that is an amazing thing to think about. That's powerful. It's a very powerful thing. Beautiful thought. Very good. And a good place for us to pause. We'll take a break and we'll begin our worship service in about 15 minutes. Thank you all very much.